0: not so much as the text as a scriptural introduction to my message this morning. I'd like to read the first paragraph of Hebrews 11, where we read now, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. This church used to gather for worship in a building about a mile down the road. How many of you were in that building or remember it? I know that many of you were and many of you do. It was built in the early 1950s and it was used by this congregation for more than 30 years and it was lost along with all of our earthly goods when we made the rather bold decision to sever our ties with our denomination. In some ways, this place is very different from that place. That building was smaller than this, and as you will remember, its eternal facade was made of a light brick where this, of course, is larger and has a darker brick. Its sanctuary had a traditional seating pattern with two parallel rows of pews facing forward and separated by a central aisle. This one has a fan seating arrangement. The pews are divided by three aisles into four banks. That church was crowded if 160 people came to worship. This sanctuary will easily accommodate double that number. In church architecture, the chancel is a raised area at the front of a sanctuary. In our old building, you will remember the sanctuary was literally an alcove, architecturally separated from the sanctuary, much like we imagine the Holy of Holies in the temple in ancient Jerusalem. Here the chancel is essentially just a part of the sanctuary. In our former chancel, there were two pews facing two pews with a broad aisle between them, and against the far wall of the chancel was a piece of furniture that, in terms of its appearance and use, was really an altar. Special lighting hung over it. There was a purple cloth hanging behind it. In this chancel, as in the other, the pulpit is on one side, the lectern on the other, The big difference, however, is that the communion table, and please remember that that's the name of this piece of furniture. This is not an altar, and there are theological reasons for that, has been moved forward and placed more in the center of the worshiping congregation. The reason for this difference has nothing to do with form or convenience. We wanted the worship center of our new church building to reflect the seriousness that we attach to the doctrine of the priesthood of believers. And our desire was to reduce the symbolic separation of those wearing robes, particularly the clergy, from the rest of the congregation. And here, through most of the hour that we spend in worship on Sunday mornings, we gather around the communion table to sing the praises of our God each having gifts to contribute to the health and the welfare of the church, and each having priestly privileges and responsibilities in the work of Jesus Christ's church. And while the two sanctuaries are different in many ways, there are also ways in which they're very much alike. If you remember the shape of the front of our old sanctuary, and then look closely at the front of this sanctuary— you'll notice that in their outline, they're almost identical. This is roughly twice the size of the other, but in shape, they are nearly the same. And this was done very deliberately for the sake of continuity between what used to be and what now is. And it might also surprise those of you who remember that sanctuary to learn that the length of the center aisle is almost exactly the same in both. This seems like it must be much larger, but it's 45 feet, just as the other one was. And the number of pews on either side of the center of the aisle is the same. There were 10 there. There are 10 here. And I've noticed that in each sanctuary, there was a clock strategically placed at the back of the sanctuary where only the one doing the preaching can see it. Been here 40 years, and I don't know the reason for that yet. There are also similarities and differences in the windows in that sanctuary and this. In our four building, on each outside wall, there were three colored glass windows, as there are here. That was done deliberately. The difference is that in our old church, they were made of stained glass, and these, as I explained last week, are faceted glass. And in each case, the symbols in the windows represented important elements of the faith of the congregations that erected those two structures. In the front of our old sanctuary, there was a single window. Here, there are three but with a single unified theme. During this Lenten service season, we've been talking about the windows in the sanctuary, concentrating particularly on the symbols that they contain. And the reason for this is that these symbols are supposed to remind us of key facets of our Christian faith and to prompt in us that quiet contemplation that is the beginning of praise. But this is effective Only so far as we understand what these symbols mean, some of them are more obvious than others. To refresh our memories and to enrich our worship is the goal of this series of messages. We began on the first Sunday of Lent by looking at the central window on this side of the sanctuary. We find symbols that represent the two sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Last Sunday, we looked at the central window on this side of the sanctuary where we find reminders of the personal relationship that we enjoy with God through his son, Jesus Christ. There is the Bible in which God speaks to us, and there is prayer in which we speak to him. And today, I call your attention to the back window on this wall. Most of you can't see it, but there's a picture of it in your bulletin. In that window, there are two symbols that represent major events recorded in the Old Testament. Both of them are found early in the book of Genesis. The first, represented by the hand of God extending downward from heaven, represents the divine act of creation. And the second, the ship or the boat, reminds us of the divine judgment poured out in the flood and of the divine mercy that was found in the ark. I have mentioned to you that The number of elements of our faith that could have been represented in our windows exceeds, by far, the number of spaces that we had available to us. And this means, then, that from all of those possible symbols, the committee had to call their number down so that that number actually matched the number of our windows. One of the questions in some of your minds as we look at this Old Testament window this morning must have to do with themes and events that are not in that window. For example, why didn't we choose to show Jacob's ladder and the altar built by Abram as he crossed the border of the promised land, reminding believers that God who has promised heaven to us will also provide the way? Why not show the trumpets in the walls of Jericho or the strangely quiet lions around Daniel that speak of the great victories that God is able to give to his people? Why not the burning bush in the desert? Why not Isaiah's glorious vision of God in the temple? Why not sheep in a valley? Why not an eagle soaring high overhead? Why not depict the foundations of the temple being laid or the walls of the city being raised? With all of this in mind, then, we wonder just how the decision was made to memorialize creation and the flood in this particular window. And in my message this morning, I'd like to try to answer that question. The answer is found in part in the fact that both of these events— unlike many others recorded in the Old Testament, are universal in their consequences. At one time, there was no person unaffected by creation. Today, none are untouched by the flood and the relief that was provided by our gracious God. The creation symbol reminds us of a time in the history of the earth in which all people owed their very existence to the creative power and intentions of God. And whether or not they chose to believe it or to act on it, there was an accountability attached to their existence. The flood symbol reminds us that today all people owe their lives to the undeserved mercy of God. And similarly, whether or not they believe it or choose to act on it, thanksgiving and grateful service are his due. The events symbolized in this window remind us that with people everywhere, we exist only for the purposes of God. We live only by his mercy. We included these events in that window because they're true. And not only because they are true, because they are the acts of the God that we assemble in this place to praise, but also because much of the world in which we live, including segments of the church, deny both of these events. Many who wish to be seen as intellectuals not only question, but often ridicule the idea that we live as creatures in a created universe. The evolutionary hypothesis and the Big Bang theory give their native rebellion against a wise and just God the cover that they covet. And almost as if something deep within them is terrified by the notion, they refuse to let the word creation be mentioned in their presence. Their scientific arguments are nothing but a smokescreen hiding their moral revolt against their holy creator. The so-called Big Bang Theory doesn't even pretend to be an explanation of the origins of the stuff the universe is made of. It's simply an explanation in somebody's view of how that stuff has been rearranged through time. The innate rebellion of fallen man against God is graphically portrayed in the second psalm and expressed in the very common rejection of creation in our culture. And very similarly, the biblical account of the flood is commonly regarded as believable only by the most gullible and superstitious of people. We're often reminded in condescending tones that educated people, intelligent people, reasonable people can't believe anything so fanciful as the story of Noah and his ark. It's interesting to notice that the same television channels that belittle such things that the Bible declares to be true will, with their next breath, assure us that there are good reasons to believe in the Loch Ness Monster and Yeti and UFOs and the Bermuda Triangle. This window in a wall that separates from the world, us from the world as we gather to worship reminds us of the war being waged by that world on articles that are at the very heart and a part of the foundation of the faith that saves us. The symbols in this window taken together represent events that give us a rather complete picture of the nature and the acts of God. This composite image is useful in responding to some of the philosophical errors that have become common in our time. For example, the deists tells us that God created the universe, and then he went on vacation, and he hasn't been heard from since. At the very best, the God of the deist is nothing but a passive observer of human history. The creation account in the Bible might be stretched to give plausibility to the view of the deist. But the record of the flood destroys it, for it reveals that God is very much involved in human history. He is not merely an observer, but he is the source, and he is the director of that history. Liberals in the church assure us that all people are the children of God, that God loves each person unconditionally, and that he is far more pleased than displeased with all people. And again, while the story of creation in the Bible might be twisted to agree with the liberal's premise, the flood story uncovers its folly. And perhaps here we find a part of the reason that liberals so commonly discount the story of the flood in the Bible. In creation, we learn of God's formation of the entire universe. In the flood, we discover that he is in complete control over that universe. In creation, we see the orderly nature of God, his intelligence and wisdom, his power and glory. In the flood, we find graphic reminders of his holiness and his justice. In creation, human accountability is tacitly suggested. In the flood, it is openly declared. In God's words, at the end of creation, it is good we see the kind, happy sides of his nature. In the flood, we see his frown and we sense the terrors of his wrath. These symbols were chosen because they represent two events between which a radical change took place in human nature and the fortunes of man. After creation, the Bible says that God said, it is good. Before the flood, the Bible says that God said, it has become so evil that I now must destroy it. Between the two, spoiling the first, making the second necessary, is that single transforming act of the first man that we call the fall. To illustrate the changes wrought by Adam's sin, imagine this, You and I have been given an opportunity by a local tour company to visit the Garden of Eden. We travel backward in time, thousands of years, and there we find a modest bungalow. The names on the mailbox out in front are Adam and Eve, and we know we found the right place. They seem to be out working in the garden somewhere, but there's a note tacked to the door that invites us to come inside and make ourselves at home. We notice that it's a small house, just one bedroom. There's no garage, there's no basement, a simple kitchen with a table for two. And then we notice that there's a room that looks like it might be a den. And in it, up against the wall, on either side of the entertainment center with a large flat screen TV, we see bookshelves lined with beautifully bound volumes. And one of those books is titled, A Complete Dictionary of the Edenic Language. Curious, we take it from the shelf and we flip through its pages. To our surprise, many of the words that are common to us don't seem to be there. At first, we notice that words like rain and storm and thunder and lightning and hot and cold aren't in Adam's dictionary. And then we realize that we can't find pain, or death, or envy, or jealousy, or fear, or worry in that first lexicon. Fascinated by what is fast becoming a project, we deliberately look for certain words and find them missing. In Adam's dictionary, we can't find sin, or guilt, or grief, or anger, or greed, or lust. Even words like faith and hope and love and religion are not printed on its pages. Now, to complete my point, imagine that the same tour company has arranged for us to fast forward in time and to visit the Ark of Noah. There in the captain's cabin, along with books on shipbuilding and navigation, we would also find a dictionary, and this of course of Noah's language. This one would be much thicker than Adam's, for here we would find all of those words that were absent from Adam's volume. Now these two imaginary volumes illustrate the great changes that took place in man and in his world because of sin. The two symbols in this window and the gap between them. Remind us that the image of God in us has been twisted and compromised. They speak to us of the devastating consequences of sin in human history and in each human life, including our own. One of the reasons creation is depicted in that Old Testament window is to remind us that we do live as creatures in a created universe, and to the far-reaching implications of that central fact of human existence and our Christian faith. The best life is that known by the person who seeks to know God and to please him by doing his will. God, this window reminds us, is not beholden to us. We are beholden to him. And one of the reasons for including the flood in our windows is the fact that for centuries, the ark has represented the church of Jesus Christ in Christian symbolism. And the reasons for this are several. The ark was to be constructed according to detailed instructions that God gave to Noah, and so the church must be. Its faith, its worship, its understanding of its mission, even its government must be based on what the Bible teaches nothing other, and nothing less. And as the ark was a means of salvation from pending judgment, so is the church and the faith that the church embraces. In the Bible, the church is called a project of Christ, one that he gladly calls his own. In the scriptures, the church is called the bride of Christ, whom he loves and for whom he gave himself. That beautiful city of God, John describes in Revelation 21, a city that is set on a hill and sprawling down its sides in all of its fullness is nothing other than the church of Jesus Christ. It is a place of refuge. It is a haven of rest. It is a place of comfort in time and joy beyond time. When the ark was finished when all of the animals were aboard, and all of the food, and all of the people, after God still waited seven days, the door was shut and judgment began. Too many Christians today are too preoccupied with last things. Too many sermons are preached in alarming tones about the so-called Great Tribulation, and the millennium, as if somehow these things ought to frighten those who have embraced Jesus Christ by faith. In that regard, please remember this, that when the rains of judgment began to fall on the ark, so far as we know from God's revelation of that time, Noah and those who were with him on the ark didn't even get wet. Unless God has changed... In some unexpected or unannounced fashion, we can anticipate that same kind of protection on that grand and awful day when Jesus will come. History will end and eternity fully begins. In the future, when we gaze at this window, may its symbols stir within us those thoughts and feelings that find their finest expression in the worship of God. Let's think about his power and glory revealed in creation and gain a fearful respect for that justice and holiness glimpsed in the flood. Let's reflect on the reality of creation and our many duties to God. Let's be conscious of the distortion of his image in us and his purposes for us by sin. Let's pray that we might become so grateful for the mercy of God represented by the ark that our hearts erupt in songs of praise. Let us seek to worship and to live in such a way that as God surveys his record of our lives, he might be able to say, it is good. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these reminders that you preside absolutely in a sovereign manner over all that exists and over all that has happened. Our minds can't begin to grasp this awesome truth that you reveal in so many ways on the pages of your Holy Word. But it places within us, our God, an even even greater need and desire to worship you It places before us an even deeper longing to serve you and be of credit to you. We thank you for this time of worship, and we pray that our lives tomorrow might echo the praise that we've offered today. In Jesus' name, amen.